podcast coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenefy, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facility side of our business. Hello and welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Chanafee, I'm your host, and each week it is a pleasure to bring to you the news and the views from the tennis, fitness, and country club industries. This week, we have a unicorn in the industry, a female tennis director, Jennifer Gelhouse. Jennifer has been director of tennis for two years up at the East Chop Tennis Club up there in Oak Bluffs on the Vineyard in Massachusetts. And during the winter, she teaches high-performance juniors in Tampa Bay, Florida. We're really excited to have her on the podcast and to ask her questions about how she sees the era of diversity and inclusion at her clubs, and also how she feels the director of tennis role will grow in the next five to ten years, and finally, what she has found out about herself in that role. But before we bring Jennifer on the line, I'd like to remind all our listeners just what we do here at Beyond the Baselines. You can find that out at our website at beyondthebaselines.com. We provide management consultancy, management and leasing of clubs, and executive search for those directors and those head pros. So please, if you have any questions, drop us an email at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or give us a call here in the office in Marion, Massachusetts on 508-538-1288. But now, without any further ado, let's bring on one of the best directors in all of New England. Here's Jennifer. Hey folks, welcome to the BTV podcast. I'm Ed Shanifee, I'm your host. And this week we have a really special guest, one of those unicorns in the business, we call them here, uh, a female director of tennis, Jennifer Gelhaus. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing great, Ed. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Oh, it's great having you on here. And, um, you know, we met a couple years back, maybe three years ago now, uh, in Vero at the Boulevard. You had been hired as junior director there. But there's a whole story to your back background and how you got here to the United States and your background from Venezuela. Can you take us through a bit of your story? We want to hear that and know how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, yeah. So if anything crazy comes out of my mouth, uh, uh, you know, it's only because English is my second language. So <laughs> I'll, I'll use that as my excuse. Uh, but yeah, I'm originally from a town called Barquisimeto, which is in Venezuela. Um, I started playing tennis when I was 11 years old. So kind of late. Um, that I is kind of late. Yeah, very late. Uh, I did grow up playing other sports, uh, doing dance and music and all kinds of stuff, but just didn't really get to play tennis until I was 11. And, you know, basically became obsessed with tennis from the moment I hit my first forehand. But, you know, growing up, I always thought that I wanted to be a scientist because it was the only subject that interested me in school besides PE and sports. Um, but I left Venezuela when I was 16 um, to come to the States uh, for college. I did get a full scholarship, which in and on itself is something that I never thought would happen uh, or I guess never really saw for myself because I did um, play in a very competitive environment. It was um, this, you know, like an academy in Venezuela and I was surrounded by extremely good players. Um, you know, I, I started 
kind of late, uh, only played a few years of juniors. So hey, was this um, was this before UTR? I mean, how did they how did you go through the application process for those you know aspiring juniors who want to go to college and play college tennis? It must be hard to do the application process from a from a basically a socialist country in South America. Yeah, well, at the time it wasn't. And you're about to make me sound really old, but sorry, I thought you were younger than that. (laughs) Well, when I was in college or when I sorry, when I was in high school, basically the process was all on the phone. Uh, I had to do a VHS tape of myself playing tennis, send my playing results, you know, like in uh, national tournaments. I did get to play a few international tournaments. Uh, actually, here in the States, I played, uh, it was called Prince Cup. Um, I played um, some tournaments in Miami. Um, but yeah, that that was the gist of it. I didn't have like the most amazing ranking, uh, but I did train with very highly ranked players. So I think that really pushed me um, and motivated me to to be good and be the best that I could be. And so, so where did you go to college? Where'd you get your full ride? I went to a school called Lincoln Memorial University, which is in Tennessee. It's a D2 school. I studied biology and chemistry, um, thinking that, you know, my future is going to be in science. And not once did it occur to me that I would be um, coaching tennis or part of the tennis industry. It wasn't something that was on my radar. You know, I think part of it maybe because I didn't see a lot of women in it, but part of it because um, I just didn't know that it was such an industry um, until later in life. And I graduated with my bachelor of science. I went to Indianapolis, which was where my sister was at the time. And I did pursue research uh, for four years. I was actually doing a program in molecular genetics. I had a full-time job as a research technician, um, which is basically the only job that you can get with a bachelor of science degree. Um, That's just kind of how that world works. And I decided to get back into tennis by coaching the um, the college team there uh, in Indianapolis, which was the Indiana University, Purdue University of Indianapolis. It's a mouthful, but it's a D1 program. And I was the assistant coach there for two years and kind of opened up my eyes to coaching and just how much I really miss tennis and how much I enjoy being on a tennis court. Let me ask you a quick question. Obviously, uh, coaching college is very different from coaching, you know, the club players that you coach now, yeah. what, what do you, what do you do in a college? Uh, so for example, take me through like just a practice. What do you do at a, a college practice? That's in the middle of the season, not when you're doing challenge matches. What do you do? What, what do you do as a coach? What's your objective? Um, it's a, it's a little bit of everything. Like you have to work on everything, te- um, you know, like your fitness level, your singles, doubles it's a lot of match play a lot of point play especially when you're in season it's all about getting match tough uh not so much when i was the assistant coach there but later on i i coached college a little bit more um my main focus was doubles because juniors don't i hate to say that but it's true for the most part they don't know how to play doubles they have no idea it's not a focus uh, for like a high level junior player for the most part 
Um, so you really have to teach basic doubles. And, you know, if you have freshmen, you got to get the, the team to kind of work together and, uh, and be able to, you know, gel, you know, on the court. <laughs> so that's a big, big part. And doubles is extremely important in, in college tennis. Yeah, it's, it's funny to say that I, I've met a few people now that have told me that they were double specialists at college because the top four didn't really play doubles and they were better doubles players at the bottom of the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really what they specialized at. So going back to your scientific career, you know, I took physics for poets as a tennis player. You took <laughs> chemistry and biology and molecular studies. Yeah. Um, so you went into uh, the scientific world and then you've come back from that world back into tennis. And what I found interesting was you said while you were playing and then subsequently coaching a little bit, you didn't see a lot of females in the sport, a lot of females in the industry. And that leads me to my first question, which is you are one of the, we call you at a unicorn, you know, you're one of the first, uh, one of the only female directors of tennis uh, in new England, really. Um, but why do you think there are so few and what barriers other than not seeing a lot of women in the, in the industry, what do you think else stops women from becoming directors of tennis? Well, Ed, how much time do you have? Because <laughs> I can seriously talk to you about this all day. That's, that's um, the main part of the, my podcast. I mean, that, that's it right there. So go ahead, be free. I mean, my sponsors won't mind. <laughs> well, you know, there are many barriers, um, for female coaches. Um, but in my opinion, one of the biggest ones is simple lack of representation. Like I was saying, I didn't, I didn't really see it um, growing up. So I, I think this is one of the reasons I really do that I never saw this as something that I could even pursue. Um, we definitely need more women in every echelon of coaching, athletic departments, sports associations, tennis clubs. Uh, we need to get out there more. Um, and I've heard so many people say, oh, well, when you're good, you're good, right? And while there may be some truth to that, nobody's really born good at anything. You need to be inspired. You need to be taught, trained to develop any kind of skill or natural ability that you might have. So if we're not doing that for women, uh, we're really doing a disservice to our industry. We have a lot to bring. Um, We will instantly double the pool of talent for any job (laughs) once you start considering women or having more women. Uh, We have so much to offer it's just kind of a silly thing. I kind of, it kind of gets on my nerves when I hear that. Oh, well, when you're good, you're good because who's really born good at anything. Right. And then, you know, know, if you're good, you're good, but it doesn't always get you the job. That that's the point. And you know, what's interesting that what you just said is, you know, when you look at the club players now and you look at the, I I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant to say what your breakdown is at, at East chop where you are, but you think about my club at Sipican, the club I'm working at right now, um, I'd say 60% of play is ladies, maybe 70%. You know, the guys only get out there, you know, in the evenings, but ladies are working before work. They're playing now before work. They're, they're playing on the weekends. It, it seems that women play more doubles for sure. Um, yeah. And so maybe in the future we'll have more women pros, but I don't see the women, young women playing that much, but the, the older women do. Right. Right. No, I really hope that that changes. Um you know, a lot of times too, uh, speaking of, you know, other barriers, there might be, I think a big one is we usually get overlooked for, um, 
you know, like even coaching a high performance uh, junior, like we get boxed in into, you know, you're, you're good with little kids because you're a woman, but then when it comes to higher levels, we're kind of looked down on. And I, for myself, I had to create those opportunities because I wasn't getting them. And I always was interested in, in working with better players. So I had to create that for myself. I went out and I coached college tennis. Um, I coached at a community college here in Tampa and we had an amazing team. We had our top three players were like 10, uh, between 10 and 11 UTR and our other six players were nine, between nine and 10. We had a really good, strong team and that I had, you know, I kind of proved myself a little bit. Um, you know, we, we were a uh, runner up at the other national championship, you know, totally turn, turn around the team. Um, but anyway, my point is I had to basically create that for myself at a club. I would rarely ever get the opportunity to work with a player of that level. I'd like to welcome our first sponsor here at beyondthebaselines.com podcast, and that's Play by Court, playbycourt.com. Choosing the right technology partner is not an easy task. However, staying with the same outdated provider can be a costly decision. And with today's fast-changing environment, while well, you need a partner that will help you adapt to the ever-growing needs of your members. At Play by Court, well, they provide the best technology solution customized for your club. With their app, your members can easily manage their profile. They, they can book courts, programs, lessons. They can pay. I asked Andre, show me the payment solutions. It's fantastic. And your members can communicate directly with members and you, the staff. So please go have a look at playbycourt.com and see what really matters most to your members. Your club, your rules, your software. Playbycourt.com. Here you are now. Uh, you've been at East Chop for two years. East Chop, for people who are listening, is on Martha's Vineyard. It's a lovely club with eight clay courts. Been there for almost, maybe over 100 years now. Um, I think it is over 100. But you're, you've are you joined this, and it was funny. I, I, I remember talking to... Um, one of the clubs I've worked with and one of the presidents said, you know, I didn't know there was this band of traveling Wilburys that go up and back and up and back each, each summer and back down to the warm, warmer Southern States. And I said, yeah, there's thousands of us that do that. Now you're one of these people that does it. Mm-hmm. And you've gone to one of these older established clubs and you got there. And I know that they used to have a court reservation system where everyone would go down at five o'clock with their cocktails <laughs> and pull a ticket out of a basket for the next day's courts. And a in our day and ball. age, what did what, what you, you say, Jen? It, it was a bingo ball. It's like a lottery. <laughs> yeah. So every night they would travel down, you know, that, that assumes that everybody lives close to the club, but right. um, they would go down and, 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 and pick the bingo ball out of the basket to see who would get first choice. And, and <laughs> as you always know that, Certain members like certain courts, there's less shade, there's more shade, there's less backdrops, there's closer to the water fountain, whatever it may be. You went in there in the first year, and I, I've known several directors that have not been able to achieve this, but you changed the whole system. I want you to take us through that. And also, as you do that, discuss with us, why is it so hard for members and clubs to accept change? Sure. You know, Nice loaded question there. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, you know, my opinion is, at least my opinion, is that, you know, East Chop, like many other clubs, especially in the Northeast, you know, they're very old clubs, like you just said. 
Uh, they have a lot of history. East Job is actually 110 years old. So these clubs think that they have figured out their operations because they have been in business for so long and they have a steady stream of members that belong to the club from generation to generation. And a lot of times it's like, they just don't know any better. You know, I got to tell you at the beginning, there was some resistance to going online or, you know, going uh, with a CRM or a court reservation system. Um, but people got over that pretty quickly once they realized how convenient and smart really it is to go about it this way. Um, we have a few members and I hate to say it, but it's our kind of our older members, you know, that complain about it. Um, but we make sure that we always have staff that can help them, um, you know, book courts or whatever gets set up. Uh, it was a process, you know, you got to kind of uh, train your members a little bit when it comes to implementing something new like this. Um, but at the end of the summer, which, so sorry, let me go back a little bit. Um, I, I got pretty lucky. Um, last year was my first year uh, there and I really wanted to implement this. I got to use COVID as the perfect excuse because it was like, well, we're trying to avoid groups and gatherings. Why are we going to get together to do basically a court, uh, you know, court reservation at five? We're going to pick a bingo ball out and share the basket. Right. So it was a perfect excuse for us to get away with it. But, you know, people ended up really liking it. We actually surveyed our members at the end of the summer to kind of get a sense for how they all felt about it. And the result was a resounding, yes, we like it and we wanna keep this going. So now we're actually looking into um, maybe uh, bringing more, uh, you know, more of like a, an actual CRM uh, for the club and, and going, it just, I feel like if you don't have this, you're not really servicing the membership to the best of your ability. If you're using paper and you're going about it that way, it's just a mess. How, how do you run a business that way? It's 2021. Like, come don't, on. Don't tell the old fashioned uh, directors of tennis that, but you're right. I, I think you can much better serve a membership with uh, transparency, which the technology allows for. And everyone thinks you're hiding something behind the desk when you're doing it by paper. And Right. And it gives you direct feedback too. all these, right. all these programs. Now they tell you, you know, which, even though you might have a sense already, it tells you the numbers don't lie, right? It tells you which clinics are being successful, which ones you might need to add, which ones you need to ax, you know, with programs, with events, you know, whatever. So I think it's just so smart to, to do this. I think if you're not doing this, you're really missing out and you're really not servicing your members to the best of your ability. Did you have any conversations? I know I have, and I, I'm sure you have. Um, but sometimes I think um, members are loath or it, it, uh, maybe a little intimidated to go up to the director and say, hey, you know, uh, why did you choose this system? Or, or why are you doing it this way? Have you ever had a conversation to, to them to say, hey, I can better serve you because of this? Have you said that to the membership? Um, yes. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes, and, and I try to be very careful about this, make sure that the squeaky wheel is not the one getting the grease, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes 
the really loud members, this is something very important that I've learned. They're very loud members. They're not usually a reflection of your whole membership. You might have one, two, maybe you have 10, right? But out of 700 members, do you, are you really going to prioritize their opinion? No, you got to go with what serves the most people. And our club, even though we're on an island, which is a relatively small island, you could still possibly live 30, 40 minutes away. You might not even be on the island. And so what are you, how, what are you going to do to reserve a court, you know, or yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just crazy. <laughs> you make a wonderful point. I, I've had this point. Uh, I, I made this point to a, a general manager that I brought in once uh, to a club and they, they call me like four times in a week about the same squeaky wheel. And that squeaky wheel got, got to her early on, you know, early in the season. It's not that crowded. As you know, you're at a seasonal club. You get there June 15th. There's maybe 10% of the membership there. And that squeaky wheel's louder than, you know. And I turned to that manager and I said, hey, in two weeks' time, that squeaky wheel becomes 0.007% of your membership. So exactly. let it lie. Pocket veto it for a week and then see what happens. Right. And this is why it's so important to survey your members too, because then you have the data, then you can show your boss or, or your board of directors or whatever. Look, this is what the club wants. This is what the, what services most of our membership. So you can have a conversation with that person that is complaining or whatever, mm -hmm. and kind of open their eyes a little bit. Like, look, we hear you, but. I do like surveys. I sometimes <laughs> think surveys, sometimes surveys are a little misleading but you know I, I i did a stat for my board this year and it came out with something in the region of 67 percent of people coming to the club on a daily basis require a pro on a court that's an enormous wow. that's six out of ten maybe seven out of ten that's an enormous stat Wait, where was where was this at your club or sipican yeah that's really interesting i mean we you know over the course of summer we had 150 kids in the program so if you just put that on a day-to-day -day basis you have 90 kids Okay, they're coming every day for clinics. So that's 90 right there. But then if you just take the, the seven to 10 doubles games we have every morning, which have been there for years and years, as you say, it's an established club, seven to 10 games, that's 40 adults, right? But yeah. then you have cardio on an evening and that's a, let's say six courts of seven, that's 42 right there. So now you're 50, 50 with the adults. Wow. That really is also a reflection of what an amazing job you've done there, Ed. Well, thank you. But I think it's not just my club. I think it's around the nation that that's happening. And you'll see it with yours. I know you, you were talking to me and, and, and your president called me and said, hey, they want three courts. What do we do? What do we do? You're going to start seeing more and more courts, too. And, and, and the survey may bring that out and say, hey, we want more courts. The membership may say, we want this, we want this, and we want this. And that will give the board the chance to give out more courts to the programming. You brought up a great point. You know, you and I are at similar clubs, um, and we're in this age of uh, inclusion, era of inclusion, era of uh, um, diversity. Mm -hmm. And have you had any issues with that? Well, let me just tell you, I'm in Oak Bluffs, which right. is very diverse. That's exactly right. I forgot right. about that. Well put. Yes. So we're a very different club. It's not like many of the clubs that I've been in the past. Uh, it's very diverse, which I absolutely love. That's fantastic. Amazing. Yes. Yes. Oak Bluffs is a very diverse community. So uh, yeah. you're lucky. 
clubs that you know that I know where we have worked and it's not as such. So great to hear that you haven't had that issue. Yeah, not not at my current club. It's it's really amazing. I, I love this. One of my favorite things about uh, this club. We've talked about other couple other things, but uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, let's go through your history a little bit. You 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 you, you coach college. And then uh, I don't know your resume that well, but I know you were out on Long Island as a junior director and you were there for seven years, junior director. And then you stepped up to the role of director of tennis at a wonderful club. At this moment in time, what do you think is the most important role that you play as director of tennis? Um, I would say constant communication with my members. You know, my job as a director, obviously, is to coordinate everything, make sure that I'm servicing to the many different needs of the membership. Um, But, you know, I got to make sure that there's something for for every level, age, every interest, Um, you know, but if you don't communicate your business, you're not promoting your programs, you will not get people on the court or attending your events. So I do... I do newsletters, email, social media, individual email, text messages. I'm not the best about calling people. Um, I think it's just way too time consuming. And a lot of times I end up getting people's voicemail and I'm just not a big fan of it. Um, Maybe the millennial in me, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) but I do everything via email or text and people at least so far, they seem to really like it and it's working. And the more um, emails I send, the more lesson requests I get. And yep. that's been a really eye-opening experience for me. I, I didn't think that would happen, but seriously, every time I send out an email, um, like a member-wide email t- newsletter type thing, I get at least 10, 10 emails asking for lessons. It's that's insane. fantastic. And you know, I don't presume, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't presume you thought of that, that communication, and, and I'm going to go through why you're right, but I don't presume you thought that communication would have been your biggest role having worked at Maidstone, because I, I would think that Maidstone doesn't communicate that much from the tennis shop like like you are. Actually, um, Stefan, who's the director there, he did send out newsletters Okay. Um, and did communicate, they, you know, they're also a very old club. I think they're approaching 130 years or something like that. So they, they don't have, you know, they're still paper-based. They're still, you know, doing things kind of old school, um, which is fine. They, they, they do have like, you know, point of sale system and computers, <laughs> but just not to the level that, you know, I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Anyway, where was I going with this? I well, we, we were just talking, we were just talking about, um, you, you, and I'll be honest, you, you nailed it. So if you survey the national membership of tennis players, the top three things they talk about a director of tennis requiring number one is communication. Ah, uh, see, there you go. Number two is hiring. Very mm-hmm. important. Got to have a network to hire from which to hire good, good Absolutely. pros, good instructors, right? You got to have uh, staff. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you call me halfway through the summer and we got you a staff member. It's your network. That's your network, right? And number three, ready for this one? I love this one. Availability to the membership. And let's talk about that because availability to the membership means you're not on the court. I call the court the cage. You're not available to the membership. 
Yeah. And these members want the director of tennis available. They want to have a chat. They want to tell you what they want. You just said the squeaky wheel, but yeah. some members, most members really just say, Hey, you know, I'd love to have this and they have great ideas. And that's why a survey is important. I limit myself on the court in terms of number of hours I can teach. And I know that's why this year you're really happy post COVID to have a, have an assistant where you could spend a little more time off the court. Mm-hmm. Did that make a big difference this summer? Oh my goodness. The biggest difference. So, um, this club in the past, they had uh, a pro, they just had one pro basically teaching whatever, 12 hours a day. I don't even know a crazy amount. You know, when I got the job, I was very adamant that I was not going to do that. I wanted an assistant pro and they've never done it, but they said, sure, let's do it because of COVID it ended up not happening. You know, we didn't know they they didn't really think that we were going to have a lot of business because of COVID. They, they were, we were kind of afraid that we were, we weren't going to have, um, basically enough hours for this pro to make sense mm-hmm. uh, to, to bring them, you know, because, um, you know, the, the club has to spend money on housing and all this stuff. So it had to make sense for them, especially being uh, the first time doing it. Um, so unfortunately, I was by myself. And I got to tell you, I, I mean, everybody saw this, right? We, we had a huge <laughs> rise in tennis activity because of COVID, which they didn't see coming. I guess nobody really saw coming, but ended up being on the court 10 to 12 hours a day. <laughs> it was nuts. I was burned out. I listen, I love tennis. I don't love being on court all day. I really don't. And I don't, as, as I get older, you know, new things start hurting. I don't see myself teaching, you know, hours and hours on court every day. I just, I don't have any desire to do that. Um, But I do want to be in the tennis industry. So my goal in life (laughs) is to get to a position where I am managing uh, a facility and I'm teaching a little bit, you know, maybe 15 hours, 20 hours of that a week. Um, And, and then the rest is just, you know, running the business side of it. That's my goal. I'm not there yet. Um, I still only have one assistant pro and this year, oh my God, it was the best. I could actually take a break during the day and I could actually uh, have the time to talk to people like you were saying and, and be available. Availability. It makes a huge difference. If you, if you don't have that contact with your members, you're only really uh, influencing the people that you see on the court, which if you're doing private lessons, you know, it's one an hour. And if you're doing groups, whatever, six people out of whatever, six, 700 members that you might have or 300 members, you know, depending on the club. Right. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I'll be honest with you. I, I bet you have two assistants next summer. Uh, really so. <laughs> you're, you're, you're fighting the same, same battles that most of us have fought. I fought it too. I, I got to sip a can and I said, I need housing for an assistant. And they're like, what? And now I'm going back to house four. Um, we had nine pros this summer. Um, yeah. so it's, you know, it, it does, uh, grow exponentially. Once you get one, they see the, the membership sees the, uh, sees the value added and yeah. they see the financial additions and then they start to grow with the flow. See, this is the thing. People don't really view 
the tennis industry as an industry as a business. Um, and, and that's a problem, you know, this is probably one of the reasons too, that I never envisioned this for myself growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't have that people don't understand what we do. We're not just teaching tennis all day. Uh, there's a lot that goes to it when you're running a club. It's very different to be on a court teaching forehands all day or whatever, you know, I'm just saying that, but teaching whatever it is that you're teaching all day. Here's my point. And, and this is the interesting thing that came up this year is that I have a couple of great female instructors that the kids love and they're better at teaching kids than I am. And so whenever someone comes to me in the future and says, Hey, Ed, why aren't you out there with the kids? I'll say, cause I hire these people who are better than I am. That's my, hey. that's what I do really well is the hiring and is yeah. the chatting and communicating with you. I'm, I can teach a forehand, but I can't do it as well to a 12 year old as somebody else. And as I get older, I get better at picking that person who can teach the 12 year old. Right. And that makes my program even better. And you're going to do the same thing. I'm going to watch you at East Shop and do it. Talking about juniors, you've been, you know, you've been a junior director at some of the best clubs. What's your approach to teaching juniors? Do you, do you, do you like the different color ball system? Do you, do you have a special uh, policy or a special protocol that you follow? What, what's your, what's your approach? Yeah, um, my approach has always been to make the kids have so much fun that they don't want to do anything else but be on a tennis court. So that involves, you know, making it not easy, but, you know, somewhat easy for them, really understanding their, the level of ability and skills that they might have and finding a way to make it fun for them and having staff that is fun. Uh, there's no secret that, you know, to work with kids, you need to have a certain type of personality. You need to have. Uh, you need to be energetic, bubbly, fun, you know, uh, to, to be able to really work well with kids. Uh, and at the same time, you got to be able to command attention and get respect from the kids. So, you know, not everybody can do that. I, and maybe it's because I'm a woman, I don't know, but <laughs> I really, I, I, I was, I was always really good at that. Like from the moment I started teaching tennis, I was very natural with working with kids. Um, but I think it's more because I'm a big kid at heart more than the fact that I'm a female. I think it's just my personality is really more like a kid than an adult. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, but you're a smart businesswoman. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so this but year I like to have fun. <laughs> let's talk about the kids and, and how you so your assistant this year, he came and worked for me for a week because again, housing is an issue. His housing wasn't right. So we took him on for a week. He was fantastic for a week. And then he went back over to you. Um, but he was a young gun. I mean, he's a young college player, just turned coach, great kid. Um, and I call him a kid. And then he had to leave early for college uh, to go back earlier than you expected. And you and I talked and we found you um, a wonderful elder statesman. I'd call him. He's a fantastic instructor, great energy, much older than your kid, you know, yeah. um, how did, how did, you treat those two 
gents differently in terms of management styles? And did you help them with the kids? Because obviously, you know, they both had to teach kids and um, wanted mm-hmm. to know if you treated them differently in, in terms of management, because I think they both did great jobs for you. So you must have done yeah. something right. They did. They did. They, you know, they were both amazing um, and then just different to work with. Um, yeah, I learned a lot about, you know, hiring and, and managing uh, this summer, having my uh, assistant pros, you know, for example, um, with a guy that you're talking about, um, you know, young college coach, um, he's used to working with way better players uh, than he got to work with this summer. But I did warn him about that. Um, and, you know, in the hiring process, I was very clear with him. This is not an academy. This is not any kind of high level tennis. This is beginners. This is kids. Um, is that something that you're okay with? And, you know, of course he said, yes. Um, otherwise I wouldn't have hired him. <laughs> um, but, you know, working with him was very different because I felt that, he just hadn't really done that a whole lot. So I had to really train him in that and which can be good and can be bad. You know, it's good in the sense that you can teach them how to do things the way that you like to get done, Mm -hmm. but also kind of bad in the sense that sometimes you just want to be able to just give a group of kids and be like, okay, you go, because I'm going to worry about this now but couldn't really do that, you know? Um, and then when you have an older pro um, who was awesome, you know, it's amazing how having a more experienced pro, just, you know, someone that's been in the industry for a while, it, it just makes such a huge difference because I can actually be like, here's a group you go. Uh, and that's a good part. Um, the, I guess, bad or negative part would be that you can't really it's harder to train them to do things the way you like them. So right. you have to be more willing to just kind of let them do their thing and just kind of trust that they know what they're doing. And um, sometimes you can learn from them, which is kind of nice. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you, you feed off each other um, in that sense. And um, yeah, you have to kind of let go of the things, maybe some of the things that you really like to hold on to, but it's good. I'm I'm very open-minded and I like change. So I keep my eyes open, you know, for all those things, obviously someone that that's been in the industry that long, they've done something right. So you gotta, you know, it's interesting value what they do. Interesting facet too. Um, and as a dad who has a 12 year old and you know, my daughter, Olivia, she's a tennis freak, loves it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes, and, and my, my junior director after five years has, uh, is moving on to uh, uh, start his own program, which is fantastic. I mean, that's, for me, that's a, one of the, you know, feathers in my cap. I, 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 he, he's ready to move on and take it on himself. And, and his replacement is slightly older, uh, runs a great program, but also has a 14-year-old. And in some ways, I know your second gentleman who is a bit older has, has a few kids of that age group. And when you said earlier that sometimes you have to command respect, you got to have fun, but you got to command respect. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes a a college coach who's 22 and out there with people his own age or just the same age, they're all in it together. But when you actually have to command respect in front of parents, it it can help when you're slightly more mature. Oh, absolutely. And even with the kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even with the kids. 100%. Hey, to wrap up, you've been there two years. 
you've been seven years on Long Island, probably one of the biggest, most famous clubs in America, and you've coached college and you're watching yourself evolve as a director. But how do you think the role and the position will evolve over the next five years at East Chop? Because I don't think you're going anywhere. You love it there. Mm-hmm. How do you think it's going to change? How do you think the positions? Gonna, I know you're going to evolve, but how's the position going to change for all those directors listening? Yeah, I mean, I I really hope so. Like I was saying earlier, um, you know, there's a lot of changes happening at East Chop um, this summer. I should increase the programs by 100%. <laughs> more than I'm double. not surprised. Over, over COVID, over the year of COVID, you went up Yeah, 100%. exactly. I mean, I did have an assistant pro, right? So it's not all me. Um, but uh, yeah, more than double program participation, overall revenue. Um, and, you know, my goal is to continue with that upward trend and, and see, actually, I want to see the kids, especially the local kids, develop into year-round players. Uh, to me, that's really important. Mm-hmm. It's really hard at a seasonal club um, because a lot of times tennis is just their summer sport. Um, but I really make an effort to, to keep these kids playing year round, even if it's just once, twice a week, but keep playing, you know, cause then it's not like starting from zero every summer. And I personally, like I was saying before, I don't want to be on the court, you know, 40, 50 hours a week in the future. Like I am now, right. um, I want to get to the point where I do less on court stuff and more off court stuff, um, that can make the club better. Um, and, you know, and, and grow in staff, uh, you know, ideally I would love to have five pros, but yeah, in my dreams, right. <laughs> no, I, I give you three years. I think you'll have it, you know, oh, see. <laughs> here's something and, and, and you're, you're younger than I am and you're starting younger at this position and, and you're at a club for two years, but a mentor of mine said it. And I think of it all the time. You grew up with these kids as you stay at a club you grow yeah. up with the families. And before you know it, when you started there, they were 10. Sooner than you think, they're driving. And then I you're know. coaching them to go to D3. You grow up with these families. And then the scary part is you meet the kids' kids. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Get ready. I know. Then I know I'm really old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. So be ready for it. You grow up with the families. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Um, Jennifer, it's been Absolutely. fabulous having you here on the podcast. And, um, Good luck this winter in Tampa. I know you're there working too, but uh, before you know it, it's going to be April and you're going to be packing your bags, heading up to New England. And um, uh, it was really an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. My absolute honor. Thank you so much, Ed. And good luck with all that you're doing. It's fabulous. I just saw your website the other day and I was blown away. I was like, oh, <laughs> Thank you. my gosh, look at what this guy's doing. So if anybody out there listening has not looked at this guy's website, please go out there because it's so impressive and so cool. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Have a great, have a great uh, weekend and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Talk soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening this week. We really appreciate it. I just want to let everyone know that our introductory music is by Ed Shanifee Sr. and his amazing trio. And all the chapter breaks is original music by my daughter, Olivia Shanafee. We hope to hear more from them as we continue this podcast through 2021. And we hope to see more of you as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening 
to beyondthebaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.beyondthebaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.